Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Oh, well, uh, welcome to welcome to this week's episode, which is coming to you live and direct from Four Seasons Total Landscaping. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, this is the... the what, what will you be? The Raconteurs, maybe? Or, uh, uh, the Ray... Yes, brilliant! <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and who, who's on the show today? It's uh, it's someone. It's uh, it's Dave Stewart. It's a very special '80s man. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the musician, producer, songwriter, and fifty percent of the greatest. He was everywhere, m- wasn't it? It was basically it was sort of compulsory for him to produce your record for about five years, wasn't it? He literally. That's right. No one else was allowed to produce records. That's right, and he, from Bob Dylan to Dylan. Ringo Starr and <laughs> Mick Jagger, and, and there is apparently a very funny story about Bob Dylan arriving at uh, his house oh, yes. or not at his house, and I'm sure we'll, we'll we'll probe him on that one, won't we? Yeah, spoiler alert! Spoiler alert, mate. Okay. Anyway, welcome to the Rock on Toast. <laughs> Thanks for doing this, Dave. No problem. You know, it's a funny day here, as you can imagine, oh, uh, yeah. being election day. Yeah, but where I am, it's quite quiet. And I'm seven minutes from Blackbird Studios, which I I say I've been in for two months in a row, (laughs) doing lots of different projects. But I'm actually a British citizen, just in America on uh, my O1 work visa, you know? Oh, yes. Because I I used to stay in your house in Encino quite a lot. Oh, right, yeah. (laughs) Using the studio in the back garden. Yeah, because I used to work with Michael Kamen a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was a great friend. What a great guy. First time I met Michael Kamen was um, I was very friends. I'm still really good friends with my very first wife. Who, but anyway, years later, I went round to see her for a cup of tea, and she said, "Oh, you've got to come in and meet this guy. You'll really like him." And she said, "I'll make the teas in the bedroom. In the bedroom, it's Michael Kamen in the bed." And uh, <laughs> he said, uh, "Oh, yeah." Pam, as my ex-wife said, has been telling me about you, you know, like, you're a musician, 
too. I said, yeah. I said, what do you do? He said, oh, I'm a musician too, you know. I sort of do string arrangements and compositions and stuff. And anyway, we had a great chat. And I said, listen, been making up this song, Here Comes the Rain Again. And uh, <laughs> just imagine, like, these amazing strings. And, you know, I was talking about it, but I didn't know a fucking thing about it. Right. <laughs> like how to sort of explain. But that's how I was singing bits and, and he said, well, how many violas, cellos do you want? I said, I don't know, seven of each, you know, like something stupid. Anyway, he said, well, where do you want to record it? And I said, in this church studios, which now Paul Epworth has, but I had it there for years and years in Craig. Oh, yeah, yes, 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 yes. So the thing I forgot to tell him was we hadn't built the studio yet, so all these <laughs> string players arrived and we had to record them all down the corridor and in the bathroom, and he was hanging off the sort of spiral staircase trying to conduct them. But it ended up being a you know a really classic string arrangement, and everybody would sing along to the bum 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 pizzicato and the da la la and all that stuff. Exactly, yeah. It's your thing. You've never avoided the hook, have you? Even going back to sort of the tourists, and there's there was a kind of slick pop irony about what you were doing in, in that band, you know? Well, in The Tourist, Pete Coombs wrote every song, and he and I didn't write any songs in The Tourist. Is that, of course, is that right? And Paul, he's no longer yeah. with us, is he? No, it was funny, you know, because we were perceived as a very poppy band, but the lyrics were very, very dark. One of the reasons Annie and I sort of liked, were drawn towards that, and so a lot of Eurythmic songs have very dark lyrics and really catchy melodies, is that to us is more realistic view of the world than everything being sort of Disney, everything's great, or death metal, everything's, you know, the end of the world. So a realistic view we always thought was uh, sort of, you know, yin and yang. To my eternal shame, David, the first band I was ever in was part of the Mod Revival, 1979. And when you had, yeah. you did um, I Only Want to Be With You as a cover, you were mm. utterly embraced by that movement. You were seen as a sort of nouveau mod band. So well it done. It was weird, wasn't it? Because we only, yeah. we only did that one cover song as a laugh. And of course, the classic label thing was, oh my God, that's a hit. So Pete was sort of very sort of disgruntled about it, obviously, because he wrote all the songs. And we then broke up because of that song, really. I remember seeing you guys, actually, because I grew up in Islington, and I remember seeing you guys hanging around that sort of area. Was that sort of Holloway and places like Am I wrong? We used to play at the Hope and Anchor a lot. A tiny little... Uh, Basement room, I don't know, basement, held yeah. about 100 Yeah, people. I played there before, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I saw so there. many great <laughs> bands there, yeah. It was one of those funny places where nothing about it was particularly great, a pitch black sort of basement with a tiny yeah. stage. But all the bands that I saw there, you know, well, a lot of them turned out to be huge, you know, Elvis Costello type artists we all played it like a part of a circuit now i think agencies that tried to put a circuit together in london for bands to play there were certain pubs yeah. they would be like oh we've got a room you know yeah. we can nashville playing yeah exactly British charles canning town yeah so you would go around and round playing these places which was good because unlike today when you've got to be sort of eating chili powder live on YouTube or, um, <laughs> you know, you actually played to people, you know, when you came back, like, 
three months later and played again and there was a bigger crowd and it was a very natural sort of build-up. I remember being in the Hope and Anchor one night with my mates, but I don't know what year, this would have been 77 maybe, and uh, we didn't know who was downstairs, we could hear a rumble, and on the wall there was a tiny little A4 poster which said, may the force be with you, the police, and we went down and poked our heads in. And there was no one in there. There were four guys on stage. Because they used to have this other bloke playing in the band. Oh, Padovani, Henry Padovani, yeah. 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 And, yeah. Uh, and we looked in and we went, nah. We just went back upstairs again. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, we all got through that stage one time, Annie and I, and Adam Williams, who, you know, helped us set up the studio and engineered, but was, he also used to play bass for Selector, uh, this kind of ska band. There was a great girl front person uh, Pauline Pauline Black but anyway we actually drove all the way on New Year's Eve to play a show and we just finished recording in this attic the Sweet Dreams we were playing for the first time Sweet Dreams live and a few of the other songs there was about three people there as well so uh, <laughs> and it was one of those ones like yeah, I hope an anchor story where yeah. On the way back, I remember Annie was worried and in tears because it was snowing and we couldn't see properly on the A1 or M1 or whatever it was, and everything was so down. It couldn't have been more down, and it was New Year's Eve, you know. And uh, little did we know, the next year was the year 1983, when everything happened for us, anyway. Yeah, it was Sweet Dreams was such a smash in America, wasn't it? Well, it was weird because in uh, Britain in 1982, we'd already released a few things, Love as a Stranger and something else, and the label. The label never could see Sweet Dreams as a single. They were saying, where's the chorus? And we were going, but mm. it's all chorus from beginning to end. That's like <laughs> and, saying, where's uh, the chorus on yesterday? You know? yeah. Exactly. So what happened was, it was a fluke that this radio DJ in Cleveland, Ohio, and he kept playing, you know, that song. And every time he played it, the phones went nuts. So he was ringing up RCA in America and saying, look, there's this band called The Earth Mix, and you better do something about it. And they were going, we have no the idea Earth what Mix. you're talking about. Yeah. And then they realised he meant The Earth Mix. And we were... And he, the Earth and Mix. We, were, we weren't really on RCA's sort of radar in America because we were signed in Britain. And then when they realised, oh, this is an RCA band, they then got it to other radio stations surrounding the surrounding states, and then it sort of spreads across America. And by the time we got there on our tour, it was, you know, it was on all the time, so it became number one there. And then they re-released it in Britain. That was very frustrating because it was number one in America, but only number two in Britain because Bonnie Tyler had been number one for like eight weeks in a row or something and was not budging with uh, that song. Um, I'm glad but, you can't uh, remember it. <laughs> but I yeah. do remember... Total Eclipse of the Heart, would that be, I expect? Surely you went back and did at least one 12-inch called The Earth Mix of something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should do. Yeah. What was your first yeah. musical memory as a kid? I mean, what was it that started you off? Well, it's funny because I'm writing a musical about this at the moment it's kind of like um i start and finish really only when i'm about between the age of 15 16 17 but my dad he was 
an amazing sort of uh, making woodwork. You know, he made all the furniture in our house and in a tiny shed, you know, in the back of the garden. So we lived in a house a bit like a Coronation Street, you know, and uh, he secretly had bought these somehow from Germany, these Grundig speakers, and he'd made oak little cabinets, and he was making a stereo, which we didn't know about. Ah. One night, he must have sort of wired it up between the kitchen and the living room, and when we got up for breakfast, he would suddenly put on Rogers and Hammerstein, you know, Oklahoma or something like that. Right. Sound. Mm. Oh, Oklahoma and f- in the sun. Exactly, but they had all of them. So he had the King and I, the South Pacific, everything. It was the first time I'd heard music loud at a speaker like that, you know. I'd only really heard music at school, in the school halls, teaching us songs, you know. For some reason, teaching us Shenandoah, I Love Your Daughter, which is a native... American Indian song when we're in Sunderland. Yeah. I just couldn't get my head around that. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> it blew my mind, you know, because uh, it was loud and crystal clear and all these arrangements, which at the time I didn't take any notice of. But as I used to march up the street singing I Enjoy Being a Girl uh, <laughs> from, uh, you know, from, South, <laughs> from South Pacific when I'm about six, you know, I would sing all the uh, sort of various in-between bits. So it wasn't until I was in my 30s I really realised that's what I was constantly doing in songwriting, in Eurythmics and everything, was like making these crazy bridges and key changes. And and I think it was because I'd heard just about every musical that my dad was obsessed with and he'd sing along with them all as well. That was my introduction, so I was about five or six years Musicals and that kind of music takes you out of where you are, doesn't it? I mean, you were transported away to America to, oh, you know, yeah. the things you couldn't find in Sunderland or wherever you were. And I think that's yeah. the same for all of us with pop music, but especially in a way I can hear that in your music, you know, the, there's such commerciality. And, and, and I suppose Annie's dark lyrics allowed you to be even more poppy, didn't it, really? Because uh, you knew it would he, never be twin. Yeah. Annie and I talked about this all the time. The juxtaposition, you know, which is um, if either of us caught the other one going to one way or the other, then we would sort of reverse. But we would do it very quickly. I mean, it was literally, we would start writing something, and if we didn't like it, it was out in 10 minutes. We never tried to labour over it. How do we make this work or anything like that? And there was a sort of common sort of understanding, almost like a psychic sort of thing between us, so we would finish songs in 15 minutes, you know. And, and were your roles any... sort of delineated in when you were writing, or, or was it you no, know, ideas could come I, from anywhere? Well, it could start with mm. me playing um, sort of an R&B kind of riff or start by Annie singing something at the harmonium. She had an old harmonium. Or it could be Annie had a journal that had just pages and pages of stuff and she would let me look at it and because she was always a bit sort of down on herself like oh I don't think this is any good but you can look at it anyway and I'd read what she'd written and there'd be just four lines that were absolutely amazing and I'd sort of say well look these four lines are like the basis of an amazing song and I would start playing something and she'd start to sort of 
get more confidence about them. And it's hard for people to understand that, but like a lot of people who are songwriters or front people that you think, God, they're so confident on stage are often really shy and not so confident about what they're doing in the studio or whatever. It literally could start, you know, without any instruments. Or Here Comes the Rain Again started in New York. I had this idea that if I to sort of make myself not feel bad about it, that if I bought a keyboard or a guitar, I immediately thought, right, I'm going to write something on this so it pays for the keyboard or the guitar, right? So I bought this tiny keyboard that had just come out, and it was, I don't know if you remember them, they were like, it wasn't the tiniest little Casio thing, it was a bit bigger, it had built-in speakers. And we were on the road, so this hotel that overlooked the park, and it was where all the bands stayed in. I can't oh, yeah, remember the name yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah. It was like, you know, the one. It was all a bit messed Gramercy up. Gramercy Park? I think it was a Gramercy Park Hotel, right. yeah. yeah. I was playing with this keyboard on the windowsill and playing the little Here Comes the Rain Again opening riff, but on a keyboard. And Annie came in and she wanted it. And they, then we had like this sort of fight over the keyboard. So I was going, well, I've just bought it, it's mine, you know. She shouldn't say anything. She just looked out the window and sang, Here Comes the Rain Again. Oh, wow. We didn't bother trying to write the rest. We just knew, oh, that's that then. That's amazing. Now everybody, you know, does voice memos or whatever on their phone. Well, there's a new toy every week, wasn't there? In the 80s, that was the thing, wasn't it? I say this word in America and they look at me so confused. But my dad used to say it's a bit of a palaver. (laughs) <laughs> and it's a, such a funny English word. Yeah. But it was a bit sort of to record something. So I ended up carrying around this like ridiculous sort of uh, flight cased studio. At first with a little four track portal studio in it and delay and various things that I like to play with. And then I, I got like an eight track. Do you remember those that were used to kind of look like sort of videotapes? Yeah, yeah, and, I'd uh, oh, yeah, yeah, the ADAT. Was that the ADAT one? Yeah, the ADAT. Yeah. We all had yeah. damn things. Yeah. And uh, now it was getting bigger and bigger, the flight case. So we could actually make a record on the road because we never stopped playing live as well as in that period we made eight albums, you know, from 1982 to 1990. So it's like an album a year plus touring. So that really was how we managed to do it was have a studio in the hotel room, usually my room. And in the end, we used to get a separate room for it. And uh, so we wrote quite a lot of the road. Dave, when I, when I saw you in LA, you gave me your um, songbook, which you which is uh, oh, yeah. published. And I love the story. I don't know whether you can even tell it, actually, but the, the story of um, how you ended up writing for Tom Petty don't come around here no more. And that was when you'd first gone on the Sweet Dreams tour and you played the Wilshire in L.A. I mean, it's a good story. Is it something you can tell? Back in those days, <laughs> um, you know, you were in a little bubble with your band and you arrived at the airport and then went to the gig to do a sound check and then went to the hotel or drove, you know, to the next one. By the time we'd arrived in L.A., We'd gone from like people vaguely knowing who we were, because we you know we went from New York across kind of, to the whole place was packed and um, there was just about every female singer there to try and work out who Annie was, because it was 
a lot of controversy about because of our video was a bit strange with the cow in it and then he had cropped orange hair and wearing a suit and and singing but people thought she was a black singer and then she was pasty white so <laughs> something wrong with people <laughs> no no it was just uh, just it was sounded very unusual at the time everybody was there from tina turner to stevie nicks and then also great other musicians and you know, just it was generally, you know, those gigs where people come to check it out, like, what's happening here, you know? Like, I remember doing that, going to see Big Audio Dynamite in New York, and it was me and Mick Jagger and David Bowie standing <laughs> watching Big Audio Dynamite and many other artists, you know, because it was a thing that was happening and the clash was so huge, and this was a new yeah. spin-off that I thought it was great. But anyway, back with the story, so... Uh, after the gig and after an amazing moment where Sam from Sam and Dave leapt up and sang you know this R&B track with us we were all totally sweating obviously there's no proper changing rooms no showers nothing <laughs> and uh, our backstage and, and leaning against my tiny cupboard of a dressing room door was Stevie Nicks now I didn't know it was Stevie Nicks because we hadn't really been following Fleetwood Mac in Britain yeah uh, you know yeah the pistols and all that yeah, and then it was that's... New Order and you know we were into electronic music and all that so anyway she was saying oh that was great you know well, I'm having a party at my house do you want to come and I sort of was uh, okay so she had a limousine outside I've never been in one and two of the girls who are backing singers. So, you know, just went off in this limousine. Now, you got to imagine, you don't have cell phones or anything. We hadn't been to the hotel yet, and I didn't bring my little itinerary book. So I ended up in somewhere in Beverly Hills, and we go in this house, this Gothic-looking house, and I think, God, this is like, you know, Alice in Wonderland, kind of. Dave in Wonderland. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, David <laughs> Wundler. David Sunderland. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I'm in this uh, house and doesn't seem to be a party. It's quite quiet. And then the girls actually didn't come back out of the bathroom. So I'm sitting around in this huge empty house was no party so I just decided I can't ring anybody uh, in New York our management company would be closed uh, so I just looked around upstairs and there was a lot of bedrooms and the one looked 
completely untouched like a guest room. So I went in there and just... This is more like down. Goldilocks. This is more like Goldilocks, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's a mixture of that. And it turns into Alice in Wonderland later, which became the video for the song. But um, So, yeah, I just went to sleep in this very nice guest room, thinking well, when I wake up, I'll be able to ring the office in New York. And so at about 5.30 in the morning or whatever, I kind of woke up with this sort of noises, banging and kind of rustling. And I sort of looked up and it was Stevie trying on Victorian night dresses <laughs> and then going in and, in and out of the little bathroom. And she hadn't noticed that I was in there because they were all wide awake. Anyway, to cut a long story short, because <laughs> I better. So when she realized, oh, I was in that bed, she just came in with a nightdress and we sort of spent the night together there. And, Disgraceful. Um, <laughs> but in the morning, she was like, oh my God, you better go, like, you know, and she was having a row downstairs with somebody and that's how I wrote the song Don't Come Around Here No More. Uh, <laughs> because she was shouting that. She was shouting something like that, yeah. And uh, and then when I came back from San Francisco to Stevie again, and, you know, we started to hang out quite a bit, and um, I was playing it too, and I'd made it with a sitar guitar, you know, a choral sitar guitar and a drum machine and all that stuff. And I'd, you know, was singing the chorus and everything. Then I'd met Jimmy Iveen. Now, Jimmy immediately wanted us to share a house together, which we did in the top of Mulholland. So I, I'm trying to make this story fast. Basically, <laughs> I didn't know that there was a complex situation going on, that Stevie had lived with Jimmy, but they'd broken up. And we were in a tiny piano room, like, working out this song with Jimmy, who was producing our album, even though they'd broken up. So it was very tense. And Jimmy thought this song I'd written was like a smash for Stevie. Then Stevie and him started to row a bit at the piano. And Jimmy said, look, Stevie, um, can you not, you know, sort of argue with me in front of my friend Dave? You don't really know him. <laughs> she goes, what are you talking about? We slept together the other night. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, it all ended up fine, apart from... <laughs> Stevie still goes on about it that, yeah, hey, that was my song. But, like, because Tom Petty came down and he said, oh, I'm going to record this. And then we Who did he sleep this. with? <laughs> he went to the studio. Well, that's always been a query, him and Stevie's relationship, right, because it, they were so close. And they don't stop dragging my heart around. When I came to your office in L.A., Dave, I was so inspired by your work ethic and i mean that's I really thought, i thought you were going to say i was so drunk after our well, I mean, you, did get, you, you did get me that way you made me the best martini i've ever had and possibly mm. the largest but um mm. just your work ethic and if you look back over everything you've done i mean you end up being in one of in this incredible band but at the same time you've written with Everybody, you know, Ringo Starr, Bob Dylan you've worked with, Bono, um, Jagger. I mean, it, it's endless. It was the production thing, yeah, wasn't it? So you, for a while, though, you were just you basically produced every record that was being made. Well, the funny thing was, I never saw myself at first as a record producer, but because I'd worked it out, because, you know, by getting this equipment and an 8-track and blah, 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 and recording everything myself, I sort of knew 
what was going on and that and a lot of engineering and production that had been you're the artist you sit at the back and the engineer and producer will be at the board was always a sort of weird thing that it was a separation I sort of broke that line where I was the songwriter and the engineer and the producer kind of thing writing a song on acoustic guitar in my house with somebody or just actually having a jam session or whatever I never approached record labels or I don't know what's happened but those days was a lot more kind of um, probably is in uh, certain music communities now or definitely here in Nashville but um, those days there was a sort of period where lots of intermingling of artists of different age groups so you know we were in the middle and then there was the really young bands and then there was the George Harrisons and people like that they weren't very old at that time you know in the Beatles if you think about it you know absolutely massive and then kind of stopped when they were like 29 years old or 28 or something so yeah so, I think McCartney was 27 when they split up God. yeah like so when you meet these people and, and you say I was like 31 or whatever they were like 45 so I had sort of a lot of great immediate relationships with some of those kind of artists that I suppose one, the musicality, and uh, two, sort of camaraderie of being able to sort of just relax and, and just play and talk openly about stuff. And the way I sort of have always worked, whether it was with a male artist or a female artist, was in songwriting, was just chatting about what's happening, usually, you know, in their life or what's been going on or what did happen or whatever and something starts to come out you know so even with Mick I kind of sort of tricked him into writing old Herbert's Die Hard about himself you know um, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't really a trick it was just he sort of did that sort of smile at a certain point when I was going well you know yeah Alfie so Mick a bit like you really <laughs> um, and uh this and, is what uh, amazes me about you. You're, it's your confidence, isn't it? Or do you get nervous? Do you ever feel, oh, God, I'm going to be found out this time? I think every artist and musician thinks that all the time. Like any minute, people are going to say, ah. Oh. Excuse me, but, there's um, been a terrible mistake. Can you yeah, leave? exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every artist feels that, and every performance, and every time you open your mouth in a studio to maybe suggest something, you're sort of putting your whole thing on the line you know because everybody is so sensitive about their work and or their performance or their writing that you're sort of walking into a, a quagmire another great British word now I'm talking about some of the most famous artists in the world and whether it's Bob Dylan or Mick Jagger like really questioning every single thing they're writing you know which in a way you know it's amazing and then sometimes they just blurt something out without thinking and it's like fucking hell that's why you're yeah. Bob Dylan oh that's but why you're Mick yeah. Jagger but, but, but this is what I, I sort of admire about Paul McCartney because he has no filter he delivers he gives to us every single thing he writes where a lot of writers most writers go mm, not that one not that one and this one but he just mm. keeps it coming and in there are diamonds yeah well, Prince oh, was God, the yeah. same way wasn't it I mean Prince's whole yeah. thing was, was that like it's a song never mind finish it just write another one 
and just write another yeah, one, just hey, write another one, just yeah. write another one. You know? <laughs> I'm a little bit like in that sort of lane of, what does my Alex write another one? Guy was say, telling me this the other day, but isn't there, there is a famous story of Bob Dylan coming to visit you in the UK. Yes. Is that all true, or is this just myth and legend? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, they made Dave a the film about... Yeah, they made a film about it with that great actor played Bob Dylan, oh, the great British oh. actor. Yeah. Um, is it true? Yeah. Tell the story. Oh, yeah. Well, no, this particular time, you see, you know, there's Randolph Avenue, Randolph Road, Randolph Muse or whatever. In Maidaville, I lived in Randolph Avenue. So it was very easy to go to the wrong house. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if he was a plumber or not, but her husband was called Dave. So uh, that was confusing <laughs> for him because is Dave there? Oh, he's out. If you come in, wait, you know. And, and is Dylan on his own? Is Dylan on his own? Or has he got like... Yeah, he's on his own. You know, it's, <laughs> what's interesting is um, a lot of uh, the artists I've worked with that are the massive sort of, you know, for years and years and years, are much more sort of discreet and sort of, you know, Dylan would walk around crouching he was looking in an estate agent's window when we were having a break on his own, you know, next to the clock tower and crouch in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so sort of looking, oh, look at these interesting houses. Like, I was asking about one of them, and and people obviously are gobsmacked. So I, I shot a video of him once where he rang me up, and um, it was about 10 at night, and I was going, hey, Dave, I think we should shoot a bit of film tomorrow, you know? And... I was like, okay, um, so I couldn't. I just hired a top hat, and I made this one called "Blood in My Eyes," shot on eight millimeter cine cameras, and I had two. It's quite funny as my uh, as I was trying to sort of wrestle to get different shots so I could be able to edit it or get somebody to edit it. And my uh, brother-in-law came along just by coincidence in Camden Town. Oh, Simon, quick! take this camera and shoot you know with this long lens on it while I'll shoot this one and he was shooting it and he came up to me and says oh I've, hey I've got to go you know I'm laying the kitchen floor for me man and I was like but it's Bob Dylan and he's going oh, no sorry but I've got to go <laughs> but um oh god but out of all these people you've worked with though David who's the one that made you the most nervous that this was your biggest hero if you like and you really couldn't imagine screwing up. Well, the most nervous... Oh, God, I'll tell you the most nervous I've ever been was I wrote this song. One of the girls from this all-girl sister group uh, were called Wilson Phillips. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. So I said, well, can we record it? So it was in that studio in the back of Encino. And they said, oh, my dad's going to sing harmonies. And it was Brian Wilson. <laughs> Was oh, like, wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. I was like, oh, shit. And then CNN turned up, and then it all turned <laughs> into, like, a big circus, you know. And you know how they want you to fake, like, in the studio? Oh, can you move some faders? And, you know, they want to sort of... <laughs> oh, yeah. They want to film Mike, it. Mike Mansfield, yeah. Yeah, and so <laughs> I've got Brian Wilson on the mic, you know, one of the most stunning voices... And he's really a nervous person anyway. And uh, they wanted me to sort of like talk to Brian on the tour pattern. I'm like, what are you going to say, you know? And so that probably was the most nerve-wracking 
situation I've been in. Yeah, probably that one. Oh, another one that was real sort of freaked me out was recording Al Green. Uh, oh, yeah, that must have been. I brought an engineer with me who, a young guy, he's now turned into a bit of a, a famous engineer producer, him and Flood, um, Alan Mulder. Now, oh. Alan, I flew him out and uh, we went in the studio in uh, Memphis, I think it was. And the guy from the record company said, look, if Al starts talking in the third person, we just pack the session in, say, you know. <laughs> Start speaking and I in was like, Yeah, I was like, uh, okay. So he came in, Al Green, with about three people from his church, you know, and they're all dressed smart, and Al Green had a suit on. I'd already got Annie on it, and it was a duet of Put a Little Love in Your Heart, which was for the title track of the film Scrooge, you know, with Bill Murray. Oh, wow, and yeah, yeah. I already had the whole cast, including Bill Murray, singing the end, and then it turns into the Al Green and Annie duet. So it was a bit of a complex thing. So Al Green had all his church gear on, and then... He was singing, he goes, oh, this, 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 some girl keeps coming in my ear, should take her out. And I'm like, <laughs> goes, well, I had to keep explaining to him that it is a duet. And he was going, oh, I, I don't think so. I, I think I should sing this, you know, because I can sing this one really good. And I was like, yeah, obviously you can, but the thing is, it is a duet for the end of the movie. And he was like, oh, and he was getting really fed up with it. He said, well, just take her out anyway, and I'll sing it. And I thought, okay, I'll be able to do it later, you know what I mean? Then he blew up the first two mics, you know, because he can sing from, like, 12 feet away on stage. Oh, wow. So Alan Mulder was getting really shaky because the mics were blowing up, and Al was getting a bit sort of uh, edgy. Then he did a vocal, it was great, and he came in to hear it, and he got really excited. And was like, oh man, I love this. Yeah, man, I can see this. So he went, hang on, he went to the bathroom and he came out in a tracksuit and he changed completely the clothes. And then he started saying, Al will never do this, you know, with a girl like Al will, Al will, you know, talking about himself <laughs> oh in the third person. Oh my God. <laughs> and I was like, oh God. Was an actual thank alter God ego he, then? <laughs> so I, thank God, I'd got the actual recording that he'd done a take on, you know, which was just brilliant from beginning to end. But did you get to indulge him at all to see what the third-person character was like? Oh, no, I was, like, <laughs> you know, sweating and trying to sort of, like, <laughs> mumble in my Sunderland accent, like, oh, well, that was great. Thanks very much, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so what are, you, what, are you, what are you doing at the moment, Dave? What's in the future for you? I just recorded a load of songs and... A lot of them have orchestration and everything, which is to do with this thing I've told you about where it's about me as a teenager in Sunderland. And, you know, I've got my dad's workshop in it and he's, you know, playing Oklahoma and stuff. But I've put in the orchestrations that I've been uh, putting on my songs and, um, and how I then learn the blues because my cousin sent this record and the Indian girl next door who has, you know, a grocery store. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I sort of fall in love with her through music, and she's very eccentric, which is like four cassette players, and she sings in one and then puts it out and starts singing on top of the other one, and 
but she's singing and playing Indian music and I'm sort of learning blues music because um, in my dad's workshop I find a record that he hasn't opened and it's come from Memphis with a postage stamp on it and I'm like oh what the hell's this put it on and it's a blues woman I go into a kind of trance but in the real story of my real life <laughs> it was um, Robert Johnson King of the Delta Blues Singers and I put it on and sort of that blew my mind you see, up in Sunderland, hearing uh, Robert Johnson come out of me dad's stereo that he'd made, my sort of brain exploded, and um, I just knew that that's what I wanted to do somehow. And, to meet um, the devil at the crossroads. <laughs> exactly. Well, that that's in the musical as well, see, because this woman actually appears in it and she's all around me in the backyard and in my bedroom and I'm like for fuck's sake you know keep your noise down my dad will kill me you know and it's like this real delta blues woman <laughs> that keeps appearing <laughs> but not like in a ghost form you know like bang she's there you know and uh, she sort of guides me through because it was a very sad time you know my mum had left my dad and everything was down that's how she realises I had the blues so she'll come and help me you know and that's how I meet the Indian girl. And then I realized Indian music had this kind of blues in it and vice versa. And we sort of meet over the wall, if you know what I mean. Um, well, listen, thanks for spending time with us, Dave. Not that we've got through all, nearly half of what you've done yeah. in your life, because you've done so much. <laughs> I mean, now I'm just going to go off and kill myself. <laughs> you know, you're, the, the weight of your hey, work. Hey, it doesn't is, mean is to special. say, doesn't mean to say, because I'm doing all these things, I'm having a fantastic, happy time. Um, <laughs> but anyway, no, um, no, I'm just compelled, I think, to... Uh, I went down some creative vortex tunnel when I was younger, and I haven't come out the other side yet, I don't think. My mum said, as my closing statement, and I'll rest my case, leave the rest to the defence, but um, <laughs> my mum said that when I was little, it was a nightmare because I was so busy and said one time she was washing up with the window open, you know, to the back garden. And all of a sudden I went running past and threw in a bird's nest with three little chickens in it. And I just shouted worms three times a day and ran off. <laughs> and she said it was like that all the time, you know. Thanks so much, Dave. Thank you for being part of this and doing our Rock on Tour podcast. I hope we all meet in uh, the same room together one time. Yeah, with uh, basses, bass, guitars, and guitars, and a bag of chips. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Well, uh, I'll go back to something. The next thing that blew my mind was finger picking. Is that all right? Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.